Hi friends, my name is Kevin. Welcome to the Via Media Podcast. The ecological crisis that we call climate change is upon us, and populations around the world are suffering devastating loss, forced migration, and death. And persistent scientific analysis for almost a century has left no doubt that human activity is the cause. Evangelical Christians as a substantive population in American politics do not have a great reputation when it comes to the climate crisis. But the reason for this is a complicated story and requires nuance and explanation. Recently, the National Evangelical Association published a report entitled Loving the Least of These, Addressing a Changing Environment. This document encourages and equips Christians to care about the environment as core and central to the evangelical call to love one's neighbor. It is a comprehensive report providing theological, scientific, philosophical, and strategic perspectives needed to generate action. Dorothy Borse is a professor of biology at Gordon College and the lead author of this report. Brian Webb is an environmental studies professor at Houghton College and co-directs the Christian Climate Observers Program, a program that trains Christian leaders to attend the United Nations Annual Conference on Climate Change. In this conversation, we discuss why white evangelicals are the least likely group to agree that human-caused climate change is real, why this report from the National Association of Evangelicals matters, what strategies we should consider when having conversations on this topic, and the challenges of living in a polarized political climate. All of this so we can find a better way forward in this urgent and critical issue. Here is my conversation with Dorothy Bourse and Brian Webb. All right, good evening, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us for another conversation with Via Media. I am really looking forward to this. For those of you who are joining live, I want to uh, point your attention down below to the Slido event number 285. 34863. We will be taking questions from all of you who are watching there, so please make sure that you interact there. My guests today are Brian Webb from Houghton College. Did I say that correctly? From Houghton College. Houghton. Ah, I knew I was going to mess it. Darn it. Houghton. From, Everybody does. From Houghton College and Dorothy uh, Bourse from Gordon College. And we're going to be talking about this little thing right here loving the least of these a publication from the national association of evangelicals on uh, environment addressing the environment so we've got a lot to talk about um before we go on i want to thank our partner spark church thank you so much for partnering with us and thank you to my uh, wonderful church community here at home brian dorothy welcome and thank you so much for joining us tonight thanks kevin so excited thank to be you, here kevin. Yeah. Okay. So let's, uh, I want to start with a Washington Post article that made reference to a Pew research study. This, I think, will be somewhat familiar to, uh, obviously familiar to you guys, because Dorothy, you're quoted in the article, um, and uh, but to our audience as well. In a Pew research study conducted uh, this last January, white evangelicals were the religious group least likely to agree that human activity contributes to climate change, with only 54% saying humanity contributed a great deal or some uh, to that trend. By comparison, 72% of white non-evangelicals, 73% of white Catholics, 81% of black Protestants, and 86% of Hispanic Catholics said so. My question to both of you, and either one can go first, is why? Tell us a little bit what's going on with these statistics 
for our audience who reads these things and is curious. What makes that distinction so? Frequently, it gets blamed on uh, on Christian theology, but but I think that that's very much a misnomer in terms of understanding why it is. You know, this, there's this strange phenomenon where evangelical Christians overwhelmingly, as you know, Kevin, uh, reject uh, climate science, reject a, a lot of other environmental cases um, as well. But really, it has a lot more to do with politics than anything else. What, what we see over and over again is that the, the number one variable influencing how people form their climate change beliefs has to do with their political identification, uh, much more so than, than anything else, than age or uh, religiosity or any other factor uh, as their political identification. So what you're seeing actually is the fact that conservatives and Republicans generally are much more cautious around climate change, are much less accepting of climate science uh, and it just so happens that evangelical Christians are overwhelmingly uh, associated with the Republican Party. So you're not actually seeing evangelical rejection of climate change. What you're seeing uh, is Republican rejection of climate change. And it just so happens that, that most evangelicals fall along those lines. Yeah. Dorothy? I would add a couple of things to that. And I completely agree, Brian. I would also say that there has been a very effective campaign to give people misinformation and um, and a hugely effective campaign to ally the Republican Party with this particular idea so that people don't see themselves able to pick and choose between things they agree with and don't. I think the polarization of our society in general drives that both on left and right. And I think that Overall, people that view the world very conservatively in any line are, uh, the world is changing faster than humanity can get their heads around it. And so if you're the per kind of person who doesn't believe something until the last minute, this is really going to hit you hard. And I think um, some people ally themselves, their identification with that sort of stance. Mm. Um, so I do think that God talk gets all wrapped up in it, but I'm completely with Brian that it doesn't start uh, from a religious point of view at all. In fact, worldwide, the evangelical um, types of churches have very strongly um, been in favor of climate activism. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you a follow-up question. Both of you, I think, um, please correct me if I'm wrong, would identify of the identify yourselves within the context of a Christian and evangelical tribe. You're, I, you're both working at institutions that um, identify as such. How does that sit with you? What what how do you manage and navigate that fact that you just said that a theology or a religion or your core spiritual convictions are not um, coming to play in the public sphere, at least in this particular issue. I'm, I'm sure this is true across the board with other issues as well. Um, it's not coming to play as much as the political influences, specifically from our bipartisan politics. How do you personally manage and navigate that fact? And what, is, what do you think about your faith identity within that particular context? 
I'll be honest, sometimes it's, it's difficult. You know, it's difficult to look at, at what I do consider to be my tribe and, and to feel sort of the frustration of, of I really wish that, you know, this body of believers that I belong to would, would understand. I mean, this issue is of such crucial importance that we figure it out. I mean, this is the existential threat that humanity is facing. And my tribe is largely not getting it. And that, that's difficult and that's frustrating. Uh, but I also come back to realizing that, you know, that statistic about uh, evangelicals being much less likely to accept climate science than others, while true, also hides uh, a really some important factors to that. So like Dorothy referenced, this is not true globally. So if you look at Christians around the world, evangelical Christians around the world, overwhelmingly are deeply concerned about climate change and environmental issues. It's not true about young people either. Uh, a good friend of ours, Ben Lowe, just recently published some research that shows that Gen Z evangelicals are equally as likely as their secular counterparts to be concerned about climate change. So it's not true about Gen Z students. It's not true about African-American evangelicals who are much more likely to be concerned about climate change. Um, and, and so really what we're talking about, we're talking about white evangelicals in the United States over the age of 30. And that's mm. it. So that to me comes back to an encouraging factor like, OK, this is not blanket everyone in my faith. This is a small subset of some people in that subset, not even all of them either, who are struggling to get their heads around uh, this reality. And so yeah. reminding myself that this is not universal. This is just a, a grouping of people and it's a grouping of people that. I still deeply love and want to help bring alongside and, and help to understand the challenge that we're facing. Yeah. Dorothy? Um, I'm a woman, a Christian, and a scientist. And putting all of that together, um, I have spent a great deal of my career loving people with whom I strongly disagree mm. on a wide mm. array of things, <laughs> including my right to stand in front of groups of men and tell them what the Bible says about the climate. Right? So um, while I'm practiced at that, it is very painful. Hmm. And um, I loved, Kevin, when you were describing yourself as a person of hope, I'm a person of hope by decision. I don't always feel that way. I yes. sometimes feel very depressed about the whole thing, but um, but those are feelings. And I have decided that to be a useful person in the world, I have to love everybody, regardless yeah. of how much I agree with them. And then I have to um, to act hopefully. Yeah, that's a brilliant, beautiful, and exactly in line with the definition and the sentiment of hope that we are attempting to advance. We're trying to make sure that optimism and feeling good about the future um, and trying to be blind to all the negativity, that is definitely not the definition of hope that we're trying to advance. So that was very well articulated, Dorothy. Um, okay, so let's actually get to some clarity. Um, I don't think we need to spend a lot of time on this, but let's just for the sake of ground level, the science is clear. The science is, there, there's no question in the sense of the conclusions that we're drawing. The problem, of course, is that science is never 100% on everything. There's always, you know, variations and always possibilities and probabilities. But in this particular case, the science is clear. Is there anything that we else we need to say from that particular starting point? And then I want to move to what does 
the faith say? What does evangelicalism, what does Christianity say? And then the second piece is I want to move to um, the document that was published. So is there anything that we need to say about the science? I The reason why I want to bring that up is just to make sure that should there be anybody in our audience who is in that particular category, are there things, some pillars, some uh, ground things that we can put um, as we progress forward in the conversation regarding the science of climate change and specifically anthropogenic climate change, the idea or the conclusion that human activity is exacerbating the warming of the planet? So as a scientist, I would say a couple of things. And one is that the whole point of science is that you're making a model of the world that is the closest to reality that you can approximate. And so, of course, any model could be wrong. But the likelihood that this model is wrong and something like this isn't happening is correct is as close to zero as you can get. And and so um, so we need to operate in a position of wisdom. So mm, yeah, the level of certainty would be similar to how certain I am that if you drive your car on ice, you are likely to have an accident or if you, you any number of other dangerous things, you would be accepting this mm -hmm. science. So that's one. Um, I think the other thing is to say the science, because of course, science is a broad thing. If you mean the statement, um, humans are affecting the climate in unprecedented rapid ways and we need to pay attention to that absolutely there's that's just very clear but the reason some people wonder is because scientists are always having little fights about what those details are right yeah. as and so there's always going to be parts to the science that aren't settled but those foundational pieces are really yeah anything to add to that brian uh, Dorothy said it really well. I think the only other thing I would say is a lot of people just don't understand the degree of uh, work that scientists from all around the world have right. put into understanding the whole global climate process. Uh, there really is no comparison in another scientific issue in terms of the depth uh, of engagement that the global scientific community has put into understanding this phenomenon. Yeah. And so, yes, we, we, we deeply understand it. It is us. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I, when I when I first started digging into this a while ago, I was pretty stunned to kind of come to the realization that we have known about the effects of carbon dioxide um, since the late 1800s. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, the greenhouse uh, gas effect was was articulated in scientific papers back mm -hmm. then, and we've known that this could have global impact all you know well into the 30s, right? 30s or 40s, very very early mm -hmm. on. We've had a long time to deal with this. So actually, the, the first person to to measure it, Svante Arrhenius, was in the 1890s. The first person to calculate the global impact of burning CO2, oh, really? or sorry, burning coal to produce CO2. See, yeah, I didn't even know it went back that far. That's fantastic. Okay, so so with that established, and and this is not a, a conversation on the science of this. This is really the intersection of Christianity, faith, and and what we do about that. Help us understand. What then is the evangelical position? And in some ways, I'm going to tie in multiple questions here. And maybe, Dorothy, you can start. If it's true that evangelicalism is this very uh, wide, diverse set of people that 
and many of them do believe. What is this document for? Who is this uh, intended to speak to? And what are the intended hopes or goals? Because the, the document includes a, a vast, diverse set of theology, philosophy, some science, of course. There's some economics in there. It's, it was a pretty comprehensive document. Um, so I guess I'm kind of curious who or what is this thing for, specifically published by the National Association of Evangelicals, of which we've talked about that breakdown, the demographic breakdown mm -hmm. of who does and, and doesn't believe. And then after that, I want to ask about the theology that we really should be grabbing onto, the biblical perspectives and stuff. Okay, so this is an update, a second edition of a document put out in 2011. And um, so one of the reasons that it was put out again was because we'd been asked to. Mm. It's been used in courses. It's been used by churches. It's been used by different groups. Mm. So then I would say there's three or four other values that we hope come out of it. There's a certain number of people that will read it and find it compelling who didn't already think that climate change was as pressing a concern as they already thought. That's one group. Another group is people that are convinced that this is a problem and want a way to communicate with other people who they care about. Mm. And they want the vocabulary and they want something else. And a third way is to give, cover isn't the right word, but to give strength and backing to people in the political sphere in particular who are trying to make courageous and difficult decisions without the support of the people that they need. Hmm. And so when, when a person who really wants to make a difference on climate change is needs that backing, yeah. that's something that, that this can provide. And I don't know how effective it is because I don't hear all that, but I, I did hear a lot of people asking, when are you going to put out a, a new version? And in fact, we had partners, the Evangelical Environmental Network and a World Relief, and World Relief in particular, being one of a Christian relief and development organization, they've been saying for decades, all of the Christian yeah. you know, organizations where you're um, supporting a child or whatever, they're all saying this and yeah. have been. And so for us to come alongside and say, hey, we're not a relief and development organization, but we do represent and speak to a lot of evangelicals, that's really helpful. Yeah. That, that's really, uh, really helpful. The, one of the lines in there that I quoted out, this is towards the end of the conversation, but we'll throw it up here. Um, that was really stunning to me was on page 58. Um, the, the document states, the effects have already undone years of development investment by driving people climbing out of poverty back down the development ladder. That is a stunning stunning statement because evangelicalism world relief world vision i mean we 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 are we are known for having a strong presence in the development world for better or for worse and we can get yeah. into all that stuff but but to think about neglect of climate change um mm -hmm. as basically undoing all that work is pretty astonishing and that's why we're seeing a lot of uh you know the leaders evangelical leaders who are deeply concerned about climate change 
a lot of them are coming out of the missions community or right. the NGO and development community. And that's because they're the ones seeing this happening. Right. Another one, a favorite quote of mine that I use frequently, Kevin, that's very similar to that, uh, is from a Christian aid worker in Bangladesh that said, forget about making poverty history, climate change will make poverty permanent. Oh my gosh. It's the what? exact same idea that we, we are never going to solve all of these other global problems like poverty, like hunger, like lack of access to electricity, like all of these other things that are challenging humanity around the world, and particularly in some of the poorest places, until we also figure out how we can fix the climate crisis yeah. as well. Um, help me with my messaging. I have said over the last couple of years that I, I have opined that climate change is the most important issue. Uh, be my counselors. Uh, is that the right messaging? Is that correct messaging? Is there a better messaging uh, that I should be deploying? I see that climate change is a risk multiplier. It's its own problem, but it also multiplies the risks of many other problems. Yeah. I don't, I can't even rate things as the most important because I think everything is so interconnected and I can, it's like asking, do you care about babies or old people? You know, that's not a <laughs> sentence I can understand. And, but one thing I will say is really striking about American, especially white evangelicals is the sense of individualism. And I think that that, I don't know if this speaks to that question, but it does to me in the way I see things that when you don't think first of when you don't think about community as readily, mm. then you want to save children one at a time by sponsoring them. Mm. But you don't want to give money to prevent a famine that's coming. And you may be a mile and a half away from even thinking about the fact that systemic things that happen, the way the world is set up, makes it harder for poor people and then if we set the world up differently mm -hmm. it might not be that way mm -hmm. yeah yeah i think that's a great question kevin um I, I feel like i could make plenty of arguments for why climate change is the most important issue we're facing but i would almost never say that because uh that's going to turn people off who uh, unless it's already their top issue it's going to turn a lot of people off to the to the topic so um what I, I love what Dorothy said about it being a risk multiplier. Yeah. That's exactly what it is. It makes poverty worse. It makes hunger worse. It makes human migration worse. Uh, all of these conflict, it makes conflict worse and more likely. Um, but uh, is it, it's certainly one of uh, the most important issues we're facing. And it's, and it's, I think, one of the few that also uh, has a chance to become irreversible as well. A lot of other challenges yeah. we're facing. Uh, we're facing them today, uh, but we can fix them tomorrow. But climate change, if we don't fix today, uh, is, is going to be problematic yeah. tomorrow as yeah. well. We're barreling towards those tipping points very, very quickly. Um, thank you. That was really wonderful. I am now going to be changing my language. Dorothy. Okay. But before you go farther, I think it's worth <laughs> asking, what would be competitors for the biggest problems? <laughs> nice. So yeah, I yeah. would have said greed. I would have said greed and corruption and we could do all these things to be active about climate and we could still have all the solar panels owned by the wealthiest people mm -hmm. right so 
to some extent, we're not going to solve these problems if we can't at least make, make systems that prevent corruption. And, and, and so that's, that's not a parallel thing to climate change, yeah. but to me, that's almost a better answer. The other thing I would say is that there are some sleeper problems that people don't know about. And one has to do with nutrient pollution. Mm. And um, so I, 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 I personally think there are some things besides climate change that are existential threats. Oh, okay. But, um, I got a couple of things now. Define nutrient pollution for our audience who may not know what nutrient pollution is. Okay. So um, for anybody that lives near a lake, you might have heard of eutrophication, which is when too much, usually fertilizer, gets into the lake and algal blooms grow. Mm -hmm. That That's nutrient pollution. Yeah. Usually it's nitrogen and phosphorus. It can be from sewage getting into water. But um, the biggest things are that we have sped up the, nutri the nitrogen cycle in particular so yeah. much that the movement of nitrogen from air to, to soil and water is double what it would be if humans weren't active. And it's killing water bodies, yeah. you know, with from oxygen. And so um, that's not a climate change problem. And it's not as big in some ways, but it's also needs it, to be solved. <laughs> it's all it's all tied together. I, I just want to um, reemphasize it and highlight what you said, Dorothy, because I, and I knew it. I knew it. You, you two were the perfect people for this conversation, because what you what you said about the philosophical and the conceptual changes is really at the heart of this. I mean, sure, there's one level where we got to get CO2 out of the atmosphere. We've got to get off fossil fuels. That's one level. But the other level is we've got to think about uh, greed and how our economies are shaped and what kind of beliefs we have about the natural world. There's a spiritual component to this as well. I'm, my very first conversation that I had with Jeremy Lent has written extensively about the conceptual frameworks that have gotten us to this particular right. point. And right. we need to change those conceptual frameworks. And, and in many ways, that's the harder thing to do in some ways. And so this is a oh, this yeah. is a multifaceted problem that we're we're facing in our time. Well, yeah. fundamentally, the, the problem really relates to something simple that all of us do on a daily basis, and, and that is consumption. Right. The, the more we consume, the consumption is essentially what's driving both of these problems and, and all the other major environmental challenges that we're facing, that, uh, that our levels of consumption are simply not sustainable. Now, that doesn't mean that it's morally wrong to buy something. Obviously, we have to do that in order to live our lives. Uh, but we do need to rethink our relationship with consum consumption in a different way yeah. and what that looks like. And, and as you said, that really requires kind of fundamentally reordering the way society looks. And, and that's a little bit uncomfortable and a difficult conversation to have because there aren't easy answers to what that looks yeah. like. Yeah.
I, I have the pleasure of having some people in my community of the the younger generation, and they they're starting to capture this. Like they they are thinking about have uh, whether or not they even want to have children, how much money they're going to spend, how they invest their money. There's a whole movement in, with effective altruism that has emerged upon the scene. Um, so I, yeah, there's some really um, wonderfully uh, wonderful, amazing things that are happening. Very intriguing developments that are happening in our generations. Um, Okay, so uh, in addition to this conceptual change that needs to uh, happen, there's the theological foundations that come for those in our audience who are evangelical, evangelical adjacent, kind of on the edge, Christianity, whatever you want to call it. There's all sorts of different iterations of this in this time. And there's two main things. Number one, what really is a Christian slash evangelical slash biblical um, imperative or teaching that we should be globbing on to. And then the second question I want to follow up with is how then do we have conversations with other folks? And I will, I guess I'll throw this up now. A friend of mine sent me and I want to be very respectful and I blurred out who this person is. Very prominent pastor in this area of very large growing influential church. But this is an Instagram post that he posted not too long ago. Um, and notice the title, There's a War on Our Future. This is from a podcast this, this pastor was listening to. After spending Labor Day in Yosemite with my fam, I'm convinced the climate is just fine. It's people that need saving. Humans must be our priority. Sure, the climate is changing. It's been changing for thousands of years, but people are the prize. I'm going to run this race to win the prize set before me. The future is bright from where I'm standing. So this is a theological position from a particular brand of Christianity and evangelicalism. So to, I know I'm asking multi-layered questions here, so I apologize. Question one, what, what really is the, a Christian theological, evangelical, theological, biblical uh, understanding of humans' relationship with our natural environment and ecology? And then number two, help our audience who's going to go home this Christmas to have conversations around the dinner table with friends who go to that particular church who really understand that. What is, what, what do we do? What kind of conversations do we have? What's the approach? Oh man, Kevin, you're packing them in here. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I have too much in my head. Um, so the first thing I, I want to say, and, and this isn't my standard response, uh, but it should be enough that God simply cares about the natural world. Like, so humans are created, you know, in the Genesis account, humans appear on the scene the afternoon of day six. Every single other day along the, 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 the order of creation, God declares things to be good. So all of, the, all of creation is declared to be good before we even exist. So the goodness of creation has, has nothing to do with our existence. There. It's simply good because God created it good. Or you look at the Noah account in Genesis 9. Uh, I like to ask my students, I, I always do this, and they never get it right. I said, who did God covenant with after the flood? And they always say Noah. Or, or maybe they say with, with all people on the earth. Like, no, six times the exact same phrase is repeated. And all six times is God made his covenant with Noah and his descendants and with every living creature on the face of the earth. So God's care for all of creation is exactly that, is for all of creation. So that, that should be enough to stop the conversation. Unfortunately for people like your pastor referenced here, it's not enough, uh, which is why usually my, my go-to argument is something along the lines of creation care is people care. 
Uh, and it's exactly why, and, and I mean, the over and over again in this, yeah, I've, I've got my cheat sheet right here handy, but over and over again in this beautiful document that, that Dorothy wrote, um, we see this focus on uh, loving your neighbor and your focus on caring for others and how a changing climate impacts others. And that concept of loving your neighbor, I think, is the most useful communication uh, bridge for talking to evangelicals about climate change, because it's really easy to connect the climate crisis to hurting our neighbors and to our neighbors who are suffering. Uh, there are so many examples. I point to my, my friend Tafue Lusama, who's a pastor in Tuvalu, and mm -hmm. the, the reality that his uh, people in Tuvalu are making national evacuation plans because their homeland will not exist a few decades from now. Or I can point to my friend Rebecca, who I was just with at the UN Climate Conference a few weeks ago. Rebecca is from Uganda. Uh, Rebecca lost her cousin Elijah uh, in a flood, uh, in, in a ridiculous flood that that had uh, unusually heavy rainfalls that are uh, undoubtedly uh, made worse because of a changing climate. And there are so many examples that we can point to about people who are directly impacted, our neighbors, our global neighbors who are being directly impacted by climate change. And so pointing to that and saying, we as Christians should have a role to play, right? That we need to be, our responsibility as Christians is to love our neighbor. Uh, and if we're not acting on this issue, then we're not acting out of love. So I think for me and my communication, that that's usually what I find to be most effective at, um, at building bridges with, with Christians in a way that they understand. Mm. Thank you, Brian. When I hear a quote like that, it just breaks my heart. So it's mm -hmm. nice to have you describe how to answer that. Yeah. Dorothy, did you want to add to that? Um, I guess it would be similar to saying, uh, you know, I keep using a car accident <laughs> metaphor, but I'm in a car with somebody else and we're racing at a brick wall and I'm saying, I don't care about the car. I just care about people. Mm -hmm. Well, you're right in one sense i'm not worried about rocks the rocks will be fine <laughs> that no and when people say the planet will be gone or destroyed if it is another place where it would help to be more precise because it's easy to say well that's not true and i am not worried about the crust of the earth that's not my concern in this but I am very concerned about my children, potential grandchildren, about whether or not there will be clean air and water, whether there will be homes on the seashore, all the people who are going to have to move and who are already refugees. And I, it's just such a false dichotomy to even say something. It, it just shows remarkable ignorance of reality and it grieves me yeah i read catherine hayhoe's book the, f the first one before saving us a climate for change mm -hmm. and i remember being struck by the emphasis um, was not necessarily on care for the planet which was really interesting um her argument and this was obviously published many years ago it, it was also published um 
with her husband, who is an evangelical pastor mm -hmm. too. So I, I'm, I'm thinking possibly of the audience, but um, she leaned heavily on the idea that it's loving your neighbor. That's the thing that we care about. We're, we're not worried about the planet per se and, and care for the creation. But that begs a little bit of a question to to you, Brian, with that. And, and this is obviously um, an, an inquiry, not, not a challenge. It is an inquiry. Um, is, is that actually correct, I suppose, Catherine's original kind of idea that care for the planet, which includes care for, you know, the, the plants and the animals and, and, you know, all of that kind of stuff, because you went straight there as the first piece, which is it should simply be enough that God called all of creation good. I was wondering if you might be able to tease out a little bit more of that, because I, I do feel like if our, and I'm, I'm all, all on board with, with what anything that Catherine Hayhoe says, I'm all on board with. <laughs> um, the, the question, though, is does it leave that element out that you mentioned out of the fullness of, the, of our theology? And if, if it really just comes down to caring about our neighbor, loving our neighbor, but we forget or at least de-emphasize some of that creation care element, it feels like we could be um, throwing some baby out with the bathwater or, or other kinds of analogies, other kinds of metaphors that we're actually called to care for the animals and by caring for the animals and by caring for our ecology, by caring for creation, that is part of what it means to be made in the image and likeness of God. So I'm wondering if you, uh, those are just some of the things that come to mind. I'm wondering if you could tease that out for me. No, I think you're exactly right, Kevin. And, and that we do have a shallower theology because we found that those arguments aren't working. It, just the straight up argument that we should care for God's creation because he made it and called it good and, and made us stewards of it. Um, everyone agrees with that. I mean, I, I've never, I have yet to find an evangelical Christian who disagrees with that statement. And yet that obviously is not nearly enough to motivate us to actually do that caring for creation. Uh, and as a result, because that's not enough, we have a poor theology because we, we acknowledge something to be true and then completely ignore the implications of what it means to live that out. So I, I think that's, that's a sad reflection of the current reality mm. that exists. Yeah. Uh, and so in an attempt to try to further reach people, we, we do move to that love your neighbor because from a communications perspective, it is more effective. Uh, but it it's only a partial look at why we as Christians should care. Yeah. Thank you for that. Uh, you, you both mentioned some wonderful theological perspectives. Now, I want to go back to that quote that I put up from the pastor that's uh, in this area. What are some strategic things that are important? Because the, the strategy, like you mentioning to me, Dorothy, that talking about what is the most important is not necessarily helpful. And Brian, you mentioned that by saying that you could actually, you know, um, alienate yourself from other people because now you're making a kind of a political posturing. Um, but just talking about the threat multiply, I mean, that's incredibly helpful language. And I really appreciate that. Are there other strategies that some of our audience could take home this Christmas to having those conversations that, and, and I'm picturing students in your classroom who have very similar situations. What advice would you give them? What counsel would you give them? What kind of wonderfully um, elite education would you give them <laughs> for having these conversations at home? Well, one thing that I, 
uh, suggest to my students is not put not putting themselves in a position where they have to be an expert on something to deserve to get heard. Mm, mm. And that is so good. That's helpful. And so I, I mean, and there's many touchy issues that my students are going home to talk about. And sometimes their pastors, their parents, Uncle Joe at dinner or whatever are going to push them on it. The fact is that they might know more with one course under their belt than that person that they're talking to does about a topic. But there's this power imbalance in that conversation. And so I, I usually argue to steer a conversation away from you having to have all your facts rallied and and instead to either argue for the right to have different opinions and to talk about them or um or to ask the right questions so something that i have asked people is do you think these aren't things aren't happening because you don't see them yourself Hmm. and sometimes people will say yeah i don't and then i'll say do you expect that the place you live is where these things would first be seen well, sea level rise is not going to first be seen in upstate New York, where my <laughs> father-in-law had the same conversation, right? But until I actually asked that and pushed him to see that, he wasn't able to. He was, And then I said, I, so I would ask people, where do you get your information? Mm. And why do you think that's a good place to get your yeah. information? Yeah. How would you know if you were wrong? Yeah. And I think being able to do that without heat, being able to do that in a spirit of love, people are often able to hear it. The other thing I'll say is pick your battles. There are people who form an opinion about the world when they're about 35 or 40 and never once change it. And I'm not like that. Brian's not like that. I, I think, and you're not like that, Kevin. I, you talk about journey. I talk about being on a journey all the time, right? Yeah. Or yeah. learning constantly. But there are people that once they hit adulthood, they never, ever change their mind. Don't get in a fight with them yeah. if you can help it. Yeah. Because I, it's not going to do anything. So appreciate that. Uh, y- your first part, I think, was really wonderful for the Via Media ethic, which is to inspire a curious humanity as the way forward. And by asking those questions with the posture of true humility and curiosity is the way to break down yeah, some of those barriers. Yeah. Yeah. Brian, what would you say to uh, some advice of strategies for your that was fantastic, Dorothy. Thank you. Yeah, I'll just echo everything that that Dorothy said as well. That That's all fantastic advice. Uh, the other things I would say. Um, and, and this comes from George Marshall. George Marshall is one of the world's foremost communication experts on, mm. on climate communication out of the UK. And, uh, and what he always says is to frame things in terms of, of I statements instead of you statements related to climate change. So when, when I look at, this is particularly helpful for students who, like Dorothy said, are not climate experts yet, but they've, they've learned enough to know this is a problem and, and the basics of it. Uh, but framing things in terms of, you know, when I look at the information and the science around climate change, 
it's really concerning to me. And I, I read about these stories of people in here. And so using these I statements and what you're doing there is you're turning rather than uh, giving sort of a polemic to try to convince someone, you're explaining how you came to your perspective and concern mm -hmm. on this issue. Mm -hmm. uh, related to that, it would be the use of stories. So some people have a first person story examples. You can't argue with someone's story. It's just like sharing your faith. Uh, you can't argue with your own personal experience with Jesus and how that has impacted your life. Uh, that's someone's story that, that is sacred as their story. It's the same thing, uh, you know, if you have a personal story of, of how you've seen climate change impact you, share that. If you have a friend who has a personal story, uh, if you know someone who's been impacted, uh, sharing stories can be a really powerful way to bridge that partisan divide. Uh, and then the other thing I'll suggest, and you're, you probably were going there a little bit later on, but I'll, I'll go ahead and give the teaser out now, uh, is talk about solutions that people might be excited about. So part of the problem with climate change, it's called solution aversion. People aren't actually opposed to climate change. They're opposed to what they perceive the solutions to be. So providing solutions that will get people excited, maybe if they're coming from a different ideological perspective, uh, talking about solutions that might get them interested. Talk about all of the jobs that renewable energy creates, because there's twice as many jobs in the renewable energy industry as there is in the fossil fuel industry. Or talk about uh, market-based approaches to climate change that, that can work uh, well within a free market system. Or talk about um, agriculture as a solution instead of part of the problem. Agriculture is a big contributor to climate change, but it can be a huge solution for climate change as well. So talking about ways instead of framing um, someone's uh, area of specialty or interest as the bad guy, how can we frame that area uh, as a contributor towards solving the problem? So, so that's a key part of bridging the gap as well. Man, we need to bottle that up and, and take a dose of that every single morning. That's, fan that's fantastic. I remember hearing a podcast recently, and I do not remember what state it was in, but it was in a red state where uh, a local municipality who really honest, the, the mayor there couldn't give a rip about climate change. He didn't care at all. But he saw what the wind industry was doing to his industry, where it was primarily coal for a while, but he could see the economics of it and how this solution was being... Yeah. Uh, transformative for the community because you know coal was on, on the way out and all that kind of stuff and then um my wife danielle pastor danielle who's the pastor of spark church went when she went to cop immediately came home and started telling the story of the fires here in northern california that just you know decimated um you know an entire city paradise california and then where um my in-laws live in santa rosa and the evacuation and the just that story has been incredibly profound and compelling too. So we're very much on board with that. And yes, Brian, I was going there to the solutions because I want to have, I want to ask some friendly fire in the uh, loving the least of these documents. There were some solutions that were uh, suggested and some examples of evangelical Christian organizations that are doing so, uh, some positive work. One of them was called the Market Environmentalism Academy. And um, I have uh, a critical question to ask here because I signed up and I took the course, or I should say I took, uh, I signed up to take the course, got all the materials, and then I attended, I think, the first two or three lectures. And I f walked away from that feeling as if the course was really more a defense of free market capitalism than it was a... Uh, 
a helpful educational experience on environmentalism, um, more apologetic than rigorously scientific or educational. I'm kind of curious, is that does that strike you as surprising, uh, Dorothy, as the chief uh, author of this document? Am I missing something? I, I am kind of curious because that particular example did not feel commensurate with the, the the thrust of what that document was attempting to do. And I might have been missing it. So help me understand. What I think you're missing is not those things that you noticed. I I have the same criticisms. Because mm. great so minds I, think alike. So. <laughs> so I think what you're missing is that we were not promoting those as all solutions are good solutions. The purpose of that was to show an example of somebody who is attempting to join the conversation about climate change and make a solution from a conservative direction. Mm. You can easily say, and that's not a good solution, and I don't agree with them. Mm. So I, I apologize tremendously if people walked away from that thinking this is being promoted as a good solution. Mm. The purpose of it, though, was um, that very often I get told things like, um, I'm afraid that all the solutions are going to be socialist or right. I'm a capitalist and the free market is just going to solve it. And I don't think I should care about climate change because it's not really real because somehow I can't believe it's real if I'm a free market capitalist. Mm -hmm. Just saying, oh, look, here's these people and they're saying I'm a free market capitalist and here I've got some solutions, it turns out. Most of it is an apologetic for free market capitalism, but I somewhat regret uh, holding them up. But but never was I intending to suggest that this is a great uh, solution to the problems that we have. I do think it's it's very dicey. And if you can picture writing this, um, there is that whole solution aversion thing and Many of the solutions are political, which is immediately you're going to lose a lot of people. Many of the solutions are are unpopular, um, telling people that um, their their lifestyle might have to change or that we have to coordinate with other people. That's not very popular. So it was sort of. Um, just trying to put out there, join the team from any direction. I, I really appreciate that. That's a very helpful explanation. And I think it highlights the complexity of this. Um, not, uh, I, I think I think it is, it, it's just a, a, a matter of fact that the solutions have to be political because this particular issue is so global, it requires political action. It requires that kind of level of attention. But when you live in a society that is this polarized, that this um, right. is just so, politics is not a positive word, it's a negative word. Uh, don't be political, right, is the phrase that you hear frequently right. after national tragedies or, or moments of, of sincere lamentation about things that are happening. Um, it, it, 
I don't think I don't think uh, you have to apologize per se if, if anybody took what I think your explanation was very helpful for me to frame. We're going to need everybody. And the reality is some solutions are going to be better than others and we can still criticize uh, the effectiveness or the efficaciousness of various solutions. But let us also celebrate that there is movement in some direction with particular communities, right? Yeah, so. that was the tone we were hoping for. <laughs> yeah. um, okay. Let's uh, let's go to the Slido questions here. Jimmy, thank you so much for getting up some questions. We've got two questions that got submitted that I think will be helpful. And then I'm going to ask you guys to send us off with some uh, some hope and some encouragement. Um, and I think these questions are actually going to do it. So this first question comes in, uh, an anonymous person asks, should Christians pay more attention to biodiversity loss and desertification, desertification, even perhaps at the expense of climate action? They could be of equal importance. What say you? It's uh, do you love old people or babies? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> like, how do you answer that? Okay, so I'm coming as a community ecologist, and I love creatures. In my profession, I thought I was going to save endangered species, and then I ended up in this lifelong conversation with evangelicals about the environment. But um, in my opinion, they shouldn't be separated. We should be doing things to save, uh, to act on climate that also save biodiversity. And in fact, some other things as well. And that was something that came up a lot in the document that there's human health uh, implications. And if we act on this, we can also improve health. It's the same way. If you protect the Amazon, you will protect biodiversity. If you keep things from cutting down all the forests, you'll protect, you'll protect soils. And so I don't, I don't personally see those all as different things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's all, it's all interconnected. Uh, just like Dorothy said, the things you do to protect biodiversity are, are things that help solve climate change things that help solve climate change are going to have a positive impact on biodiversity. It's the same thing with poverty. You could say, uh, should Christians pay more attention to poverty than climate change, which I hear quite a lot. Uh, and it's the same thing. We're, we're not going to do anything on poverty unless we actually start talking about the climate crisis. And if we start addressing climate change, it's going to be tremendously helpful for addressing poverty. So you, you can't just slice and dice and separate out all these different global topics. They're all interconnected. I think that's one I of the... Say... Oh, Go ahead, Dorothy, I'm... please. I would say that there are solutions that only do solve one problem, even at the expense of other problems. And so the wisest thing we can do is identify value, a solution by how many problems it solves at once. Hmm. Yeah, I, I think this is one of the things that's most stunning about this particular issue that seems to be um, d distinct about climate change is that this is not a issue, it is every issue. Um, it is so intertwined and it feels like I haven't um, I don't know if there's other issues that bring in both ecology and environment, but also economics and politics and poverty and justice issues and the, the racial diversity and all these kinds of things. It's just an incredible, incredibly intertwined issue that's just so fascinating to me. And yeah, it does feel as if everything that we do um, is part of 
the solution. I mean, if it's effective, of course, everything that we do is part part of that solution. Um, question number two that came in, what are recommended ways in which we can help with climate change? It seems like individual actions do nothing for the environment as a whole. I reduced my carbon footprint and that saved 0.0000000% right. So uh, yeah, I think this is obviously one of those questions that's uh, really needs, needs some clarity as to we're all in this together, which means we all need to be doing something, but I'm just one person. I'm just one family. I, I love this question. It, it's a little bit like, um, well, why should I give toward this charitable, charitable cause? It's not solving global hunger, right? No, of course it's not solving global hunger. No one person is going to solve global hunger. No one person is going to solve climate change. The important thing is that it's acting in conjunction with with how we should live our faith. So should we live our lives ethically in a way that matches our values and that does good in the world and contributes toward making progress? Absolutely. Yeah. Is it going to fix the problem? No, but it's a step in the right direction and it matches our values with our actions. And that that's what's really particularly important. But moreover, other people are watching you. Nothing you do exists in isolation. People watch you to see what you do. And when you shift your life in, to orient around living a more climate-friendly lifestyle, people take notice of that. And that's going to influence other people. And that's going to result in them influencing other people. And it has a cascading effect. So, uh, it, yeah, it's the step in the right direction towards making progress on this. It's not going to solve it, but it's necessary for uh, addressing the issue. Yeah. Dorothy? I think part of the question is, are you motivated by guilt or are you being motivated by something more positive, a positive goal to work together? A motivation by guilt isn't usually very helpful. It leaves people resentful. And then they notice that I'm making this sacrifice and that other person is not. And then it just leads to being irritable. I suffer from that all the time. <laughs> Not all the time, but it comes up. Yeah. Um, but in my own life, I am not at all able to live up to my ideals because the systems aren't in place for me to solve everything at the level I know we could as a group. So I think a good approach is to say, I'll do the parts I can do, and then I will enable other people to make changes that help everybody make um make yeah. improvement so uh, there's things where you're just like i don't have a solution to this but somebody else over there is trying to get a solution to how to recycle mattresses in my town i can't come up with that yeah. Yeah. but i can enable and i can encourage and i can vote and i can give money and whatever so it's not just me um but you asked something about hope i think Was yes that, yeah <laughs> yeah and i will say from my own experience and maybe it's just because um <clears throat> being a scientist in a lot of churches is a very isolating experience mm. um and often People will use the, the term scientist and Christian as if they're two non-overlapping groups. Um, 
one time I was talking about climate change to a college age group at a church where I was an invited speaker. And at the end, the person that invited me said, well, why would we listen to scientists when they have a mostly godless worldview? And I was just like, whoa. <laughs> so I did come up with something to say, but I use that as my go-to for sometimes this is pretty hard. Um, yeah. But I say all of that to say that um, I am heartened because I don't think it's as lonely hmm. to be a Christian who cares about science and to be a Christian in America, in white evangelical circles, who cares about the environment as it was when I was coming out of college. I tell that to hmm. my students. Uh, there's so many opportunities and jobs that didn't exist and um, connections. <clears throat> so I, I think it's not as lonely, even though, you know, there's all sorts of crises that have gotten worse, but. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I was thinking, I don't know if this metaphor works because I know there's some questions about chaos theory, Edward Lorenz's chaos theory when it comes to climate, but I was thinking that if there's any merit to the metaphor anyway, the idea that a butterfly's wings can cause a tornado in, in Texas can perhaps be applied to this idea as well, that if you put solar panels on your roof, you never know what kind of social <laughs> effect that will have throughout the rest. Can, can I go there? Is that, a, is that an appropriate metaphor to use? I don't know. I don't but... think so, but you know, I'll go for it. <laughs> okay. And, you know, I'm going to take out my compost. It's going to bring world peace. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty persuaded by the butterfly effect, I, at least at least as a spiritual principle that, you know, that you, you do make a difference, you know. And that's one yeah. of the things that is fascinating, that uh, every action does have some sort of influence with the market, with your social circles, and you just never know where those vectors of influence will, will go. Uh, we got one more that topic, Kevin, though, that the number one factor influencing whether or not people put solar panels on the roof is whether or not there's already someone in their neighborhood that yeah. has solar panels on the roof. Ah. Yeah. Yep. It's fascinating. All right. I think this is going to be our last question. Uh, it is super late where you guys are. Thank you so much. La last question. What careers will positively impact climate protection? Are you hopeful for your students and the ways they want to use their vocational gifts in science? I I think the world is so open and so many jobs are coming up in so many directions. There's almost in policy, policy, in law, in writing, in art making, in film, in science, in you name it. And there's people in all those fields that are working on this. And, and I will say that it is so overlapped that people that are working in climate and public health are all, I mean, are together. Um, and I, I joked about world peace, but I think that peace, having an emphasis on peacemaking as an overarching goal um, is something that I see more of. I'm with Brian that young people are at a different place. And I think that's really heartening and I'm trying to be there for them. Yeah. I teach environmental studies, which is the ultimate interdisciplinary program. So I, I don't have, it's hard to identify specific fields that my students tend to go into because they go into all kinds of different things. But uh, I, I think that's exactly it from my perspective. The thing that heartens me looking at the future of what our students are going to do is that there are students who really deeply care about climate change 
in all kinds of different fields, whether it's art or communication or biology or whatever. And they're going to go out into a whole variety of different companies and career paths and places of living. And they're going to continue that concern for the climate and transform the way that industries and businesses and corporations and nonprofits and universities function uh, and where they're working and living. So I think that if they all became activists, nothing would happen because they would all be the radical activists. Mm. I love radical mm -hmm. activists, but we need uh, people concerned about climate change in a whole lot of other spheres as well. And I'm encouraged that I see that happening. Yeah. yeah. And in churches. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We have a wonderful network of, of um, synagogues and churches here that we've been working with closely, um, the Jewish and Christian community that we've formulated here. It's been uh, really wonderful to see their actions. And we have some local people that are doing some amazing work um, in, the, in the city, hoping to get them in conversation as well. Uh, Brian and Dorothy, this has been uh, incredibly wonderful. I, I'm going to go back and pull some amazing gems and, like I said, bottle it up and, and take a dose of it every morning and to be reminded, threat multiplier, don't talk about you know the best, tell your stories, all these different <laughs> types of things, really, really helpful and important. Um, you are both professors with uh, students who are um, hopeful about the world. They have their lives in front of them and have this paradox of uh, a wonderful long life ahead of them, but a grim one if we continue on our path. But you are also in the business of, in the definition of hope that we talked about earlier, Dorothy, disciplining a vision and an imagination of the future would you both of you just close us out with some words of hope not just blanket optimism but what is the hope and the encouragement this is the end of class now the semester's over we don't have any more finals that we have to turn in but what is the commissioning that you would have for us um regarding christianity and evangelicalism environmentalism ecology care all that stuff dorothy would you uh would you send us off with a final word and then brian Sometimes I end my classes with go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Mm. And I don't have more to say than that, I don't think. Okay, Brian. I'm going to start with optimism and end with hope. How about that? So we can have both. Let's do it. Let's do it. Uh, there are a few things that make me optimistic about the future. Solar energy is the cheapest form of energy in most of the world right now. Uh, that fact alone means that inevitably that uh, this is going to happen. The transition toward renewable energies is going to happen because it, it just makes economic sense to do so. This massive new package, uh, the Inflation Reduction Act that passed the United States, biggest climate bill ever passed by any government, uh, that's going to make a huge impact uh, in our country. Everywhere else in the world is not as dysfunctional as the United States on climate change. Uh, that gives me a lot of hope. <laughs> I remind myself of that all the time, that, that yes, we're dysfunctional here, but we're the most dysfunctional country about climate change, which means everyone else is more functional. That's great. As a Christian, though, ultimately, when I think about hope, uh, I think about the fact that hope doesn't have to rely upon uh, intended success in the endeavor that I'm doing. The, the hope is founded in my pursuit of being faithful to the calling that God has given me. So God has given me a calling to be his hands and feet in the world, to, uh, to show what Jesus looks like to people. Uh, in my life, a lot of that looks like talking about climate change and loving your neighbor. 
And that gives me a lot of hope because I can be faithful to the call that Christ has given me simply by continuing to, to pursue and to advocate for and to speak about uh, what God has put in front of me. And, and that gives me hope. That's awesome. Brian, Dorothy, thank you so much. Thank you for your work. Uh, thank you for the publication. Thank you for your time tonight. It is super late out there on the East Coast. So we especially thank you for staying up late. And uh, you're, you're at the office way too late tonight. So we especially thank you for that. Uh, Jimmy, thank you for uh, managing the Slido to everybody who logged in and commented. I'm sorry we did, weren't able to get to all of your comments, but thank you for interacting with each other through the comments on YouTube. That was really wonderful. And I'm so encouraged. Uh, thank you so much for being a part of this community. Um, this is fantastic, and may uh, all of what you guys are doing just continue to increase and, and be influenced. Our, our uh, prayers are with you. Our encouragement is with you. Um, and thank you so much for the work that you're doing with your students as well, because you're just continually influencing more vectors of influence uh, that will you know, continue to go out into the world. So thank you so very much. We appreciate it. And have a good night, everybody. We will see you next time for our next conversation. Thank you.